You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello friends, hope you're doing well today and we're in for a splash of an episode as we journey into one of the most acclaimed and famous American novels ever written, Moby Dick. Written in 1851 by Herman Merville, the sheer scale and popularity of this story has always astounded me, even as a boy. I used to ask things like, why is a story about a captain who is so obsessed at hunting a whale that he is eventually killed by it such a great story? Indeed, why is it a classic Well, mountains of ink and thousands of books and study guides have already been produced studying its themes and its characters and its moral and religious wrestlings. I don't intend to be rehashing these necessarily today. Rather, what I want to offer is a little different. I want to offer some commentary as to the mythical and spiritual significance of the story. This means I will be looking at the story perhaps beyond what the author consciously intended and instead offer my opinion as to why this story is so psychologically and spiritually satisfying, especially for us today. To do this, I intend to structure this episode into three main sections. After the usual quick summary of the story, I will begin by posing the question of why we have an obsession with giant mythical creatures like dinosaurs and dragons and mythical white whales. This will be the first section. The next section I will move on to exploring the mythical significance of Moby Dick as a story about recognising what lies in our unconscious unknown so that we can attain the great treasures that lie hidden awaiting us there. And finally, in the last section, I will suggest the spiritual significance of Moby Dick on how the story offers a model of the life of a saint, one who is single-heartedly captured and oriented towards union with the great other. So that's the plan, and I hope you're on board with it. Let's begin now first with a quick summary of a very, very fat novel, a whale of a tale, really. Set in mid-1800, Moby Dick is a fascinating snapshot of a time when American whaling was at its peak. Prized for their oil and ivory and ambergris, the story follows one particular ship called the Pequod. While the narrator of the story is a man named Ishmael, a man in a sort of midlife bland life is meaningless crisis, I suppose you could say that the character that most drives the happenings of the story is actually Captain Ahab. Described as a great man and the greatest whaler of his time, Ahab actually has a wooden leg, because one of his legs was bitten off by a giant white whale known as Moby Dick. Since that fateful day, Ahab becomes more and more obsessed with hunting down the creature and slaying it. So one Christmas day, he sets out from Massachusetts on his ship, and along with him is a crew of memorable characters, like his virtuous first mate, Starbuck, a tattoo-covered harpooner from New Zealand called Queequeg, and the ever jolly, cool in a crisis, Stub. The tale pretty much follows the Pequod as it navigates the great seas and meets many obstacles along the way, such as typhoons, giant squids, and pirates. Herman Merville, the author, himself a seasoned whaler, gives much detail in his book, 
into the intricate messy details of life on a whaling ship, while at the same time musing on life's biggest questions through his narrator Ishmael. As one commentator suggests, while Ishmael chases after the meaning of life, Captain Ahab chases after Moby Dick. Despite Ahab's chase eventually turning him to madness and despite the many warnings of his more reasonable first mate Starbuck, Ahab persists and sacrifices everything to attain his goal. He eventually finds the white whale and after an epic three day pursuit, the whale gets the better of all the crew and the Pequod. The great sea leviathan attacks and all on board perish except Ishmael. Captain Ahab himself, holding fast to the harpoon he had managed to secure to the side of the whale, is wrapped up in the roping and is himself dragged to the bottom of the ocean to his death. Okay, curious story, right? And if it weren't for the lengthy chapters of existential musings, you'd probably agree it's a rather simple story. Let's now examine it in a little more detail. Part 1. The Symbolic Significance of Giant Mythical Creatures The symbolic significance of the great mysterious whale needs attention. I will posit that Moby Dick is quite representative of man's heightened obsession with massive mysterious creatures. You know, recently when the latest uh, Jurassic Park movie came out, I had a conversation with Episode 4's Father Tony about why this dinosaur franchise has done so well, despite pretty much the same storyline repeating itself over and over again, you know, of mankind trying to control Mother Nature and then Mother Nature getting the better of mankind and then finally they arrive at a point of sort of like a healthy respect, uh, something like that. So Father Tony and I muse whether there is something significant about otherworldly beings that are beautiful yet dangerous, familiar yet mysterious, which of course dinosaurs are. I mean, literally, dinosaurs are beyond this world, outside of our time even, you know, in the sense that these ancient giants were from another era and should be extinct. I wonder whether the dinosaurs and dragons and Godzillas and Krakens and Loch Ness monsters and Moby Dicks actually embody a particular sense of God that's lost today. The wild, otherworldly and even dangerous side of God. Since the 1800s, Christians readily grasp Jesus as friend and companion, but what about the God who is big, who is beyond us, the one who created the starry night, who bangs the big bang and speaks out of whirlwinds? See, Moby Dick was released at the end of the Industrial Revolution, when the American people were disenchanted by the monotonous world of industry and machines and grimy factories and control, who yearned once again for the beauty and wildness and freedom of being. This yearning is something of why the narrator Ishmael felt himself drawn to sea to begin with. In the famous opening lines he says, Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. End quote. And what about us today? Don't we, the readers and audience, feel a certain nostalgia at the thought of exploring the sea's horizons? Enter the popularity of the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Don't we also sense wonder and awe and reverence when the Pequod finally encounters the white whale and we almost hold it with holy fear in the same way that, uh, you know, a Shasta does with the lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia? 
Perhaps we yearn once again for the fear of the Lord, a healthy fear of the Lord. So much so that a Moby Dick and a Jurassic Park, even though not explicitly about God, stir something within our souls that yearns for our attention. Is this a reason why tales like Moby Dick has captured our imaginations ever since? Part 2. The Mythical Significance of Moby Dick We will now look at what I refer to as the mythical significance of the tale. It will be helpful to mention that, traditionally, the oceans have long been the archetypal symbol for chaos and of disorder. Think back to Genesis where God's spirit hovers over the formless seas before God speaks and creates order from it, separating earth and sky and dry land. Later, when God then parts the Red Sea, and when Jesus walks upon the water, these were all symbols of God's lordship over both order and chaos, both the known and the unknown. Fast forward now to Carl Jung's contribution to modern psychology, where symbolically, dry land represents that which is conscious, while the sea represents the unconscious, that which is unknown to us. With this in mind, if we think of the literal Moby Dick whale being the animal that rises up out of the sea, arrests man's imagination and forever calls him back into its depths, it isn't hard to see the mythical and psychological significance of Moby Dick. After all, a healthy, integrated person is precisely one who has gained lordship of both his conscious self and his unconscious self. In more practical terms, we all value self-knowledge, right? And are kind of upset at people who don't have very much self-knowledge or self-awareness. Well, self-knowledge is always the act of making conscious what lies in our unconscious. And in doing so, gaining greater mastery over ourselves by understanding the various forces and drives and thoughts that are inside us. But... The gaining of self-knowledge is not always a romantic and pleasant process, for sometimes there are things in the unconscious that we'd rather not face. Thoughts and desires and memories that we've suppressed away or considered too scandalous to bring to light. This is where the image of a Moby Dick is so compelling, for Moby Dick symbolises the surfacing of all that lies unknown to us, both the beautiful and the dangerous, both the valuable and the threatening. Remember that in the story, Captain Ahab is a whaler, a whalerman, and whalers go whaling because whales, while dangerous, are infinitely precious, bringing back the gifts of ivory and oils and perfumes and priceless skins. But in order to get the treasure, one has to also face the dragon, as our mythologies remind us. Nothing valuable in this life is obtained without great price else the object of value wouldn't be valuable at all. Again, if we place the Moby Dick story in its historical context at the end of the Industrial Revolution, the pervading worldview of the time was a slightly arrogant one, one which suggested that mankind could, through his own might and intellect, be able to conquer the forces of nature and to gain knowledge over everything. Into this worldview then came the tale of Moby Dick, which features not only the wildness of Mother Nature incarnate, but also Captain Ahab, who knows not how to tame the wildness in his own heart. 
It's as if the book was a slap in the face of enlightened men, saying, "You think mankind can tame the world? You can't even tame what's in your own heart." Wow. And along with other compelling works like Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, such tales reveals just how unconquered our own selves can be. Such a message still remains relevant for us today, dear friends. For most of us would sooner plumb the depths of Google for wisdom than the depths of our own hearts. Perhaps many of us still feel that the answer to life's big questions lie out there in the ether, when in actual fact they are found within. Part three: The spiritual significance of Moby Dick. By spiritual significance, I'm not referring to the story's many paragraphs of religious wrestlings about, you know, whether there is a meaning to life, why God seems impassive and silent, or whether Moby Dick is more akin to God or the very devil himself. What I do want to suggest is that this tale, as a whole, provides us with a model of a person's path to holiness. Some of you may recall that famous quote from the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, where he says, "A saint is a person whose life is about one thing."、Mm, that's pretty profound, because while most of us navigate the business of life distracted and disoriented, tossed about by the waves of change and chance, you suddenly have this character of Ahab, who knows very clearly what his life is about. In this way, the madness of Ahab actually becomes an apt model of the madness of the saints, who were single-minded in their pursuit of God. For Ahab, it literally didn't matter what Starbuck or crew member or ship or storm or giant squid was thrown at him; he had set his heart on the one thing, and pursued that one thing till the end. In biblical terms, he had placed his hand on the plow, and he never turned back. Now I know that the literal Ahab was motivated by revenge and spite, probably, but I'm no longer looking at this story in its literalness as intended by Melville, but now as a spiritual symbol. For when all is said and done, all classical fiction speaks to us at multiple levels, and for me, I simply cannot see why a tale about a mere madman would have such timeless appeal. Rather, there is something within us that deeply connects with Ahab, or at least wants to. We who tend to be scatter-hearted and directionless, we want a pure, undivided heart to be able to persevere to attain our pearl of great price. Think of anyone you admire and you look up to, and you will nearly always find within them commitment, perseverance, and a steadfastness that is not easily shaken. How much more the lives of the saints, many of whom persevered to the end of ends. As we delve into the symbol more, it turns out that the wound Moby Dick inflicts upon Ahab's leg is significant too, for in the book it's his one gnawing reminder that a piece of him has been captured, and that he'll never be complete without it. So too is the divine wound we all carry, that divine spark within us that was made for God, that makes our hearts so restless until we rest in Him. C.S. Lewis described this yearning as. Joy, joy with a capital J, which is like a desire that can feel so much like sorrow, except that those who have tasted joy will want more than anything to be struck by it again. Lewis, ever the philosopher, writes, 
Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such thing as sex. But if I find a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. End quote. See, we Christians often romanticize the God-shaped hole in our heart, and in many ways it is a beautiful thing. But let's not pretend that our yearning for eternal love, for truth that lasts, for beauty that satisfies, is not also an ache, one that drives our lives, making everything that is not God ultimately feel unsatisfying. If we romanticize God too much, we forget that wrestling with this truth is part of growing in the spiritual life. The name Israel, the chosen people of God, means he who wrestles with God. For there is intimacy and perseverance in the act of wrestling. In a likewise manner, Captain Ahab is able to represent something of this wrestling with God, where the sacred wound that is inflicted upon him is a blessing rather than a curse. And Ahab doesn't relent until he enters into full union with that which his heart desired, and is utterly overwhelmed by it. To be taken down to the place of his dwelling symbolizes us being utterly caught up in God to be brought to the place of his dwelling. Interestingly, did you know that in the islander nations, whales are revered as eternal beings because people never actually witness the natural death of a whale, unless of course it gets washed up on a beach. But in terms of its natural death, no one has ever seen the final resting place of a whale whose body would eventually sink to the bottom of the very deep abyss a place which is itself mysterious to mankind, a place we do not comprehend. Yet we now know that the body of a single whale can support life for millions of creatures in the ocean ecosystem, providing food and shelter and breeding grounds, sometimes for decades. Wow, right? <laughs> Talk about the themes of death and resurrection and new life. And just on this theme of resurrection, I actually came across theories about Moby Dick that Ahab didn't actually die in the end, and that having arrived at his moment of enlightenment, you know, union with the great other, he is reborn and returns to the world as the ever-wise and omniscient Ishmael. Interesting. I will leave that with you to ponder. For the practical pilgrim reflection, I'm going to recommend that you hop aboard a whaling ship. <laughs> Just kidding, I'm not even sure whaling is entirely legal anymore. No, rather, I'm going to suggest that you enter into a time of praise and worship. See, authentic praise songs actually expands the soul and restores the wonder of God's majesty and transcendence, something we explored earlier this episode. By authentic praise songs, I mean songs that actually focus on God himself as its object and not what God can do for us, and definitely not songs of petition, songs where we ask for stuff, which have their place in the church's life, but are often confusingly sung during a time of praise and worship. I will leave a link to a few of my favourite songs in the show notes and on the website if you'd like a few tracks to kick you off. And yes, one of them is actually a Christmas carol. One of the greatest praise songs of all time, in my opinion, especially when it's sung by a four-part choir on Christmas Eve in a cathedral. Anyway, you're probably wailing that I should finish up now. So I will. And I wail, miss you all very much. Until next time. <laughs>
Jennifer, take care and God bless. <laughs>